All right, folks. Uh, welcome back to Human Performance Outliers podcast. This is going to be our, our, I guess, our third episode of question and answers uh, with uh, me and Sean. So uh, since our last one, we've actually opened up a Patreon page. Uh, and one of the perks for some of our Patreon donors is kind of front of the line questions. So if you are a $10 or more, um, or yeah, $10 or more, you're automatically moved to the front of the line. And I think we'll probably play around with this a little bit going forward too, because you know, a $10 contribution is a pretty nice contribution and we're obviously very thankful for that. So one thing we're, we'll probably try to do is when we record these is maybe I'll splice out the Patreon donor questions and uh, tag them on an earlier episode so it gets out sooner. Um, than uh than maybe that it would otherwise but otherwise if you're on patreon anyway you're going to get the episode as soon as we're done recording it so you'll probably get it two weeks in advance anyhow uh and that's the case for all the patreon donors who are uh five dollars or more so obviously and whatever you can do helps a great deal for us to kind of make more time to record episodes and bring in cool guests uh but uh we do want to kind of reward the folks who are uh kind of keeping that stuff moving as much as we possibly can uh, so with that said, uh, we can kind of get going with some of these questions. And uh, our first question is actually from, I think, one of our very first Patreon donors um, and also self-proclaimed number one HPO fan. So uh, we're going to start out with Daniel Weston's question. And his question is uh, says, hi, both. I'm loving the podcast, which has excellent content and is inspiring me. Uh, my question is about speed endurance over five kilometers. At this distance, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the body's preferred energy isn't fat, but can someone be an elite 5K runner and perform without sugar, fruit, etc.? Uh, he goes on to say, Zach, in your faster study, I note that 84% VO2 max, you use 76% fat and 24% carbohydrate. What pace were you running at? And also, more importantly, how long do you think you could have kept that pace going for? Uh, kind regards, Daniel Weston. Um, okay, Daniel. So I'm actually going to kind of unpack that second part first because I think it's kind of pertinent to the first part. The faster study where you pulled that number, the 85% of my VO2 max with 76% fat and 24% carbohydrate, it's a little tricky to tie a pace to that because the way they did that VO2 max test was that the program where they put you on a treadmill and they gradually increased pace and incline. So as the pace went up, so did the incline. So it wasn't like it wasn't really relatable, I guess, to a like a flat five kilometer race, uh, but it was, uh, you know, a short duration kind of trying to remember how long I made it on there. It was it was shorter than what a five kilometer would have taken me. So it wasn't a very long um, effort. So I think the important thing from there is that when you look at 85 percent VO2 max, I'm still burning a very high amount of fat. Um, and when you compare that to the VO2 maxes of the cohort that was high carbohydrate, it was uh, definitely much lower. And that kind of stood uh, steady with also the other high fat guys. There were guys who were burning higher rates of fat than me, guys burning lower rates of fat that were all kind of following a fairly strict ketogenic diet going into that study. Um, what, I think the part of this question that is the most pertinent to you is kind of like the five kilometer stuff. And that is actually... You know, one of the things that I get the que a question about the most because, you know, myself being an ultra marathon runner and, in, you know, I, I tend to do better as the distance gets a little longer. So 100 miles and beyond, 
uh, I, I often hear like, okay, that's great that the high fat stuff works for you. It's great ketogenic works for you, but you're running these really long races that are at relative slow paces when compared to someone training for like, you know, 5k to a marathon. And that's very true. Like, uh, when I set the American record for hundred miles, I averaged about seven minute mile pace. And, you know, for anyone training for certainly any like elite or high caliber five kilometer runner, they're going to be running significantly faster than that. And I actually know Daniel fairly well, so I can vouch for him as well. He can run a pretty fast five kilometer. I believe, if I remember right, Daniel, when he does like uh, a maximum aerobic function type program or he dials in like a heart rate uh, in that area, he's he's running like a sub six minute mile at his, uh, like a heart rate of like around 140 or something like that. So, um, he definitely fits into that that uh, kind of grouping of someone who can run a, a really fast 5K. So his question is basically like, where does that that need for um, sugar or fruit or something like that? How does that change if you're moving into a faster uh, faster event? And I think that um, from my experience is when you get to the really short distances, like 100 meter dash, 200 and stuff like that, or the type of stuff that Sean is doing, you know, those tend to be the events you can almost get away with uh, a really low or no carb just because your recovery time is longer, the duration of the thing is so short, you're not depleting your glycogen stores. Uh, the gray area is when I think you get into like the five kilometer to the marathon, because those are just long enough where you're taking a big chunk out of your glycogen, or in the case of the marathon, potentially all of your glycogen stores. Uh, but it's also fast enough that you're going to push yourself into more of a glycolytic state a lot easier. Um, with that said, if you look at any five kilometer to marathon training program, a huge portion of that is still going to be done at an aerobic level. Like 5k runners aren't out there doing 5k pace every day for all their runs. They're doing 5k pace, you know, a couple workouts a week. Um, and then they're doing more aerobic stuff, long runs, recovery runs, and things like that. So those workouts aren't going to be glycolytic, uh, certainly not if they're fat adapted. So I still think that someone training for a 5K uh, or a marathon can lay that foundation, kind of like what I've advocated with uh, the periodized nutrition, especially in those early stages as they're building an aerobic base and stuff like that. And then the difference is going to be how they kind of tweak things around the workouts in the race itself. So, you know, they might they might dip into their carb sources a little more than I would training for a hundred miles. So then, you know, maybe they do bring their carbs up a little higher than I do when they're in that phase of training. But I still think that you want to set themselves up to be really strong fat burners and re keep that kind of metabolic flexibility in place so they can kind of use both of those. So they're still burning an efficient amount of fat, but they're also having access to glycogen and um, exogenous sources of uh, carbohydrate during like a longer race, like a marathon or something like that. So. Um, hopefully that kind of answers your question, Daniel. If not, uh, you definitely know how to get a hold of me. I can, I can uh, definitely go deeper into stuff if you've got some follow-up questions. Great, Zach. I'll, I'll just defer to you on the running stuff because <laughs> <laughs> it's a little out of my, my uh, area of expertise. Okay, let's go to Justin Wolfshoal. Justin's got the next question. Uh, hello, thanks so much for what you guys are doing. I've noticed that when I go on any sort of low-carb diet, I can't really tolerate alcohol. It makes my head hurt. And I immediately want to go to sleep, and I get pretty cranky. I suspect it's due to some form of transient hypoglycemia is caused by the alcohol. 
when I'm eating a high carb diet, I'm fat, but at least drinking is fun. <laughs> <laughs> I've now been on a carnivorous diet for almost two months and I'm feeling great, but my wife would certainly like uh, to have some drinks with me every now and then. I'm just too worried that having a couple drinks will set me back and I probably won't enjoy it. My question is this, do you guys experience the same thing if you try to drink while on this diet? And if so, are we destined to never enjoy alcohol again? Thanks for your time and I love the podcast. Uh, well, I mean, and I get this question about alcohol quite a bit. You know, I, I just think we have to realize that alcohol is not a health food. It's it's there's it's not something that uh, is good for us in any way as far as our health goes. I mean, I, I understand the uh, the enjoyment aspect of it. You know, alcohol uh, inhibits uh, your cognitive abilities. It, it causes disinhibition. But certainly, uh, you know, if we look at the way alcohol is metabolized, you know, it's metabolized in the liver. There's a couple things that, that, that assist with that alcohol dehydrogenase, aldehyde dehydrogenase, the cytochrome P450 system. And those things can all be upregulated or made more efficient uh, based on things we eat. And so I suspect that taking some things out of the diet, possibly some things that require those enzymes, perhaps the cytochrome P450 system, uh, you know, will help you to metabolize alcohol a little more efficiently so you don't get those, quote unquote, uh, toxic effects from the ethanol. Um, you know, that is, some people will call that a hormetic effect. You know, when we talk about giving ourselves a little bit of poison so that we're, we're better able to, to withstand subsequent uh, exposures to that. And that's kind of one of the thoughts behind that. You know, it's the same thing, you know, if you got somebody who's a chronic drinker, they're going to be able to drink two or three drinks before they notice anything because their uh, liver enzymes have been revved up so high and, uh, so they're better at utilizing that. Now, I'd, I'd say absolutely. And many people will note that when they go on a low carb diet, that their alcohol tolerance drops. Uh, I don't drink much alcohol every once in a while. I'll have a glass of wine. If I have more than that, I'll start to feel it. Uh, you know, you pull, feel that, you know, that sort of generally uh, slightly pleasurable, a little bit inebriated feeling uh, fairly quickly. So basically I become a lightweight you know, <laughs> put it in those terms. But, um, you know, I don't know that uh, you can never enjoy alcohol again on a carnivorous diet. There's many people that do. I would just say play with that again, but just just put it into context. Alcohol is not a health food. Uh, you know, just just understand that. You know, yes, it'll set you back a little bit, and it's going to depend on how much you drink. If you go out there and you know get drunk and have eight or ten drinks, you know, you're not going to feel good for a couple of days probably. And and to me, that's not worth it. But you know, certain stages in your life. Uh, different things become different priorities. So uh, I don't know about it causing transient hypoglycemia. Um, there, there's some possibility that that might might occur, but uh, you know, it's probably just the toxic nature of ethanol in general that's it's causing those those negative uh, uh, side effects. And so uh, my advice is is you know try to minimize alcohol, save it for special occasions. Uh, I'm sure you know you you can. Uh, uh, figure out a way to, to to enjoy yourselves without having to be uh, inebriated. Okay, next question, Zach. Listen, Zach, do you have any comments on that? I don't know. Um, Maybe you have some different experience. Sure. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I what I think what you said has pretty much been my experience too. Most people I've worked with and myself notice when they're cutting the carbs low that uh, they tend to be able to you know reduce the amount of alcohol they need to get the same effect which uh, I guess if you're gonna drink then that's probably ideal you, you save a little money and you and you, you don't have to drink as much of it 
and, and that's kind of been my experience too. I've never been like a, a heavy drinker or a consistent drinker. I mean, in, in, I guess in college when that's kind of like prime drinking age for most people, and I was in cross country and track and the, we would more or less have meets almost every Saturday. So the weekends were kind of, um, were kind of difficult to, to, to go out and party unless you wanted to, to show up, uh, hung over for a cross country meet, which would be miserable. Um, so basically like, you know, we would maybe go out once in a long while at certain points in the season. So I didn't really have a very good baseline context in terms of like what happens when I drink a ton versus a very little, um, on a regular basis. Uh, you know, kind of like Sean, I I'll drink mostly wine when I do drink. And I do notice after about one glass or so, um, you get kind of that like intro kind of feel good type, uh, a sense and then but if I go more than two glasses I'm probably waking up with a headache the next day so I rarely go past one or two at the most um and you know that's that's all I really ever I've done I guess from a, the other side of things like you know alcohol is essentially a fourth macronutrient in the sense that it's like what is it seven kilocals per gram but it absorbs faster than than carbohydrate or sugar so you're basically getting twice the energy for um twice almost twice the energy at a quicker pace so what that's doing is I think kind of up for debate too in terms of how that affects like the ketogenic diet and your fat, your fat adaptation and stuff. So um, I would say like kind of, you know, follow your body. If it's making you feel miserable, I would probably stay away from it. It's kind of like anything like uh, how much, how much fun are you? Is it, is it worth having fun that one night to feel miserable the next day or two? And I guess that's kind of up to you to decide and it, it might be situational as well. Um, but yeah, that's my my piece on that. Um, our third question is from Sharif Taylor. He says, hi, Zach, this question is for Dr. Baker. As I wrote to Zach earlier, I'm eating meat and dropping pounds. Uh, I'd love to return to one of my favorite activities, which is running. The last time I tried to run, I was 300 pounds. I broke both of my feet, gave myself a bulging disc in my back. So I know from experience that a light body weight is best for long distance running. Here's my question though. I'm 47 and I would like to know when I should, when should I be focusing on adding quality muscle and bone to my frame to combat the effects of sarcopenia and osteopenia? Should I give up my goal of ever being a runner again? I'm 6'4 and I wouldn't run unless I was 200 pounds or less, which doesn't seem like it's too far away with the progress I'm making. Thanks for your advice you can give. Uh, and then he says, I want to ask Dr. Baker to talk about suboptimal zero carb foods. Everyone new to the carnivore diet seems to think it's all ribeyes or bust. Add that to the list for the Q and a podcast. All right. All right. Now let me, let me get into this. So first of all, uh, Sharif, thanks for the question. Um, you know, as far as when you should start worrying about muscle mass and sarcopenia, I mean, that's yesterday. I mean, you, you should be, you should definitely be, uh, striving to put on lean muscle mass. You know, it's, it's, the formula for that is not particularly difficult. You just got to add resistance training in there. There's a lot of things you can do. I tend to prefer, you know, big, heavy compound movements, you know, with a barbell often are the most efficient way to do it. It's not the only way to skin the cat, but it's certainly the most effective and quickest way in, in my experience. And so that would be things like deadlift squats, you know, pressing. Uh, I'm, I'm a particular fan of uh, kettlebell swings, particularly heavy Russian kettlebell swings. So I think those things are all 
uh, important to do as far as, you know, the, the injuries you have and a broken feet. I, you know, I, I don't know specifically what you mean. Uh, that's, that's a pretty broad term as far as calcaneal fracture, metatarsal fracture, whatever. Uh, a lot of things can impact your ability to run as far as pain and, and just the anatomy of your foot. You know, sometimes a broken bone will alter the anatomy of the foot and you'll have to have special adaptations to shoe wear and stuff like that to make running a, an option. Same thing with a bulging disc. Uh, you know, a lot of people have bulging discs. Uh, not everybody has symptoms. And so I think a lot of times we'll find that diet significantly impacts um, the, uh, the, the the clinical significance of that. You know, there's plenty of people that can lift weights and deadlift and do things with back arthritis or bulging discs. I don't think that's a contraindication. I think in, in many cases, having a stronger back is going to help in those situations. So I think we should figure out how to do that. Um, you know, as far as running down the road, I don't think it's an impossibility. You know, you may find that you enjoy other activities more, you know, cycling is, is, is one that's going to not, if your feet are an issue, it's going to be less of an issue. If, if, you know, even rowing like I do, uh, it can be very enjoyable and, and, uh, you know, you can do it outside and even get in a boat and do that. So, uh, depending on where you're at and what you have access to, but certainly, um, I wouldn't completely rule out running. Uh, 6'4", 200 pounds is, is fairly lean. Uh, as far as suboptimal foods, you know, I think, uh, and you're right, it isn't an all-ribeye or bus diet. Uh, you know, some people do that and do fine. I think that is a way to do it, and I think it's fine to do it that way. But there are a lot of ways to, to do the diet, and I think, you know, some people like to use uh, include organ meats in there, and I think that's a very good source of nutrition, obviously. Whether or not it's required, I think it's debatable. Uh, and I hate that all the time. You know, I haven't seen compelling results to show me it's a requirement, but but I'm open for uh, discussion on that. I think uh, some people even like eating meat that's not cooked. And I think that's also a debatable topic, which I think, you know, we shouldn't just outright dismiss. Um, the uh, other things, uh, as far as other foods, you know, eggs can be fine for many people. In fact, most people find eggs to be fine. They're, they're a very hot, good source of nutrition or animal-based I generally recommend most people keep them as a side dish. Some people, when they eat too many eggs, particularly as a in, a, in the context of a carnivorous diet, will find that uh, that is something that uh, can give them problems. Some people develop intolerance. Some people develop GI issues with that. But but not everybody, and many people do that fine. Uh, seafood, any cuts of meat are fine for the most part. And then as far as like suboptimal things, you know, I mean, for me personally, and many people personally. Eating red meat and drinking water is the optimal uh, situation. You feel the best and you perhaps perform the best, but there's other ways to do that. And other people, it's fine. And so I think, you know, you know, seasoning your food, making it enjoyable, making it palatable. I think there's nothing wrong with that for most people. I think dairy for some people can be a, a, a uh, very acceptable um, uh, addition to the diet. You know, often if it's not done in excess, a lot of people will find if they do a great deal of dairy, there'll be issues with fat loss, there'll be issues with inflammation, there'll be issues with uh, other sort of clinical symptoms like congestion, sleeplessness, if they include too much dairy in the diet. So I, I just think you have to be cautious with dairy. Um, you know, the uh, things like processed meats, a lot of people talk to me about processed lunch meats and things like that. Again, those, you know, even bacon, those things are, are, in my view, suboptimal. I mean, I would use them, you know, as, as a flavor enhancement sparingly. I wouldn't live on bacon. I wouldn't live on processed meats. I wouldn't live on deli meats. I think those things are suboptimal. The best best things, in my view, are, are primal cuts of meat, you know, whether it's organ meat or 
uh, you know, the actual, you know, steaks and stuff like that, or ground beef perhaps. Uh, and then, you know, I think also there's room for, and I know this is a lot of people will, will criticize this, but there, there's room for some other foods in there. You know, if you want to have a few berries here and there, a little bit of fruit, a little bit of vegetables from time to time, for many people, that's fine. For some people, it's not. And you just have to figure out where you fall in that spectrum. And I think um, the key to this whole carnivore thing is to realize that, you know, and, and we can argue all day about this, but human evolution, who we are as a species, I think we are heavily carnivorous animals. And I think that's our primary meat, meat, a primary source of nutrition. And if we keep that the focus and we realize that, to me, Eating means getting some sort of meat in my diet, in, in my food, in my nutrition, and I make that the focus. The other stuff becomes kind of minor details that aren't worth sweating about, in my view, uh, you know, unless they become an issue, which I, I think you have to keep the focus on. Give me plenty of meat. Give me plenty of animal nutrition. Make that the focus. And then and then the rest of the stuff is, is small potatoes, if, 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 <laughs> pardon the pun. But, uh, you know, it really is. And so you just... Keep the focus on the focus. Eat a bunch of meat. Eat a bunch of steak if you can afford it. Eat a bunch of hamburger. Throw in a few eggs. Have a little bit of dairy. You know, spice it like you need to make it palatable. And, and a lot of people will find that over time they just prefer, like me, they just prefer just give me a plain old steak all the time and I'm happy as can be. And then ultimately you've got to be objective about how you feel, how you're doing, what you, what your clinical function is. That, that trumps anything else in my view. All right, well, I hope that uh, clears that up a little bit for you, Sharif, and good luck. Cool. I'll just throw in one quick thing too. Uh, when it comes to running and stuff, I think you're kind of on on track, especially if like uh, you had a lot of like body fat to lose and stuff. I've seen some pretty big folks, um, you know, run and run without pain and injury. And a lot of times that is more about just like the efficiency and your biomechanics too. So if you're really like wanting to get out and run, if that's like something you find super enjoyable. Uh, it might not hurt to have someone do like a gait analysis and I would be very picky about that. I would make sure you get a 360 degree gait analysis. So they're not just looking at whether you're like over pronating or supinating, but more looking at where your foot is planted under your bent knee. If you think your leg has like a three foot spring, um, you want that foot to kind of come down under a bent knee and that's when you're going to be the most efficient and distribute those impact forces in a more generous way. Uh, so I don't know how, or like Sean said, we don't know how or why you, your, your feet broke. Uh, but, um, it might be something worth looking into if you're really interested in running, just to kind of see if maybe there's something, uh, kind of out there. Like one of the biggest issues I see with runners, if they overstride, uh, where their foot's coming out way in front of their knee, that's where you're jamming those impact forces up into like your knees and hips and things like that. So, um, just a little, uh, uh, thought, I guess, if you're interested um, cool. So we are on to the last question. Did I just read that one? I think I did. So I think you're up, Sean. Okay. Well, I read it, but you just talked. So I'll read oh, okay. <laughs> give the folks some variety here. Um, so this is from Todd Songen. Hi, Zach. Hi, Sean and Zach. I really enjoy the podcast. Keep up the good work. Here are a few questions I was thinking about and the ones that I get from others asking me about the diet. So there's a four part question. I'll read these. And then I think Probably question one and four look like they're more for you, and then uh, two and three, I guess I'll take. So for Zach, when you're doing long runs, what are you using supplementing drinking to replenish electrolytes and glycogen stores? If it's a specific product or homemade mixture, I was curious to know what that might be. So that's number one. Number two, I heard the topic of vitamin C mentioned a few times 
and other various vitamins, minerals that may be little to none on the carnivore diet. What was the conclusion of that? Or uh, if there is any relevant source showing that the, the lowness doesn't matter as much, maybe in the absence of other things, one is not consuming on a carnivore diet. And then three, along similar lines to two, what about electrolytes like potassium magnesium? Can we get enough from just meat? Or is supplementation necessary for long-term approach? And then four, I wonder if it's possible for someone to be carnivore, build up their fat burning and mitochondrial function over time, and then do endurance events without consuming any carbohydrates. So Zach, I'll let you go to question one about the long runs in your supplement drinking glycogen electrolyte replenishment strategy. Cool, yeah. Um, so for long runs, more often than not, I'm not trying to replenish my glycogen stores. I'm usually doing long, I mean, long runs are moderate to low intensity efforts. So if I have my fat burning where it's at, I don't really need to fuel during a long run if it's not like a race where I'm going to try to kind of push myself to the limit. Uh, what I will replace uh, on most long runs, especially when it's hotter out, is the electrolyte stuff. You know, I use a product called X Endurance. They make an electrolyte supplement called Hydro X that has a pretty good balance, I think, of electrolytes. They do a very thorough kind of like study process whenever they make a product. So it's um, it's usually heavily vetted. And I've had a lot of luck with that product since I think 2012 when I first started using it. Um, when I'm doing like a long run that is, I guess, more of a hard workout or a race, and I am going to replace some of the glycogen stores, uh, then I'll use one of their other products as well called Fuel 5. And it's just kind of a really slow trickle of sugar that'll take in during it. It's much lower than I used to, much lower than what you do see most endurance athletes doing. If you're really kind of curious of that process, definitely check out our podcast and we end up interviewed uh, Jeff Browning. I believe it was episode 10, but Jeff does a very similar nutrition plan to me. We went deep into kind of like what to do when you're building up for these type of things and then what to do on race day and all that stuff. So that'd be an interesting one, I think, for you to kind of get a little more uh, deep into that question if you're interested. All right. Good, good answer, Zach. And then question two was about vitamin C and then some other uh, deficiencies. So uh, yeah, the vitamin C topic has come up a number of times, and I, I know I've talked about that extensively as of other people. You know, uh, the, the bottom line is people on a carnivore guide diet do not end up with symptoms of vitamin C deficiency. No one's getting scurvy. I mean, that's just what we're, we're observing. So, you know, the, the easiest answer is it just doesn't happen. But, you know, when we think about why that may or may not be happening, you know, we've known uh, that vitamin C it being linked to scurvy and other issues was noted you know, uh, based on some, you know, some of the British sailors that would go long periods of time uh, and then develop scurvy uh, due to lack of fresh uh, fruits, uh, particular fruits and vegetables. And so that was where they thought they had to include that on the voyage. But w what we did also know back at that time, even, you know, something like 120 years ago, we know that uh, when, when they had access to fresh meat, they didn't get scurvy. And so uh, the problem they had was they were eating just dried meats, dried salted meats were put on the ship for, for long voyages. And then they had what was called hardtack, which is a kind of dried bread, basically, you know, biscuits and bread and stuff like that. So they live on a high carbohydrate diet without access to fresh meat or fresh fruits and vegetables. And so the combination of that situation was what led to scurvy. Uh, so we know that fresh meat prevents scurvy. Now, there is the USDA didn't measure vitamin C in meat and they just assumed it to be none when actually independently it's been shown that it does have some vitamin C in there um, you know and organ meats like liver have even more but but even in just plain old muscle meat uh, you can get 
adequate amounts of vitamin C. And the other thing that uh, is also uh, playing a role in this is the fact that our vitamin C requirements are likely lessened in the absence of carbohydrates. You know, carbohydrates uh, drive up the need for vitamin C uh, via com- competitive uh, via competition, and so what happens is, on a high uh, glucose situation where you have a lot, where you're ingesting a lot of glucose, the transporters that bring the vitamin C into the into the into the enterocytes, which are the cells in the in the intestinal tract, are competitive more by 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 high levels of glucose. The vitamin C can't make it in, so we have a situation where vitamin C isn't as accessible on a high-carbohydrate diet. Additionally, when we look at the roles of vitamin C, some of the roles of vitamin C, that's an antioxidant. It also is involved in the uh, uh, hydroxylation of certain uh, 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 substances for uh, collagen synthesis. And so antioxidants we know in a low-carbohydrate are endogenous antioxidants, things like glutathione and others are upregulated. And so the requirement, again, for vitamin C is likely lowered. And then a lot of times we're taking in those very those very uh, same collagen precursors through the diet directly, and so there might be less requirement for vitamin C activity there. So basically, with vitamin C, the bottom line is you, you get enough in meat, and you don't need as much if you're not taking in all the carbs and stuff like that. So, and then when we talk about uh, you know potassium magnesium, I've never seen anybody with a potassium issue uh, that just doesn't seem to come up ever in this diet. And if, if you look at anybody's Blood work, you know, potassium is pretty well falling in the normal ranges. And so I've not seen issues chronically with potassium. Now, electrolytes can change transiently based on some things, and like Zach kind of alluded to with the uh, situation with running and exercising. And sometimes in those situations, you may transiently lose some electrolytes. And, and, and in those acute situations, it might be of benefit to uh, supplement those things. Magnesium. Similarly, you know, magnesium deficiency is is a clinical problem. I'm not seeing obvious signs of that in a car in the carnivorous population. Uh, you know, it's it's just very difficult to measure. Quite honestly, you know, the blood tests are inaccurate. There's some some thought that measuring magnesium based on red blood cell magnesium content might be more uh, efficacious for telling us about magnesium status. It'll be interesting. We'll having we're having a Dr. Kasabatoth from Hungary on later on in, in the month or early part of August, I think. And he's done some interesting research with regard to carnivorous diet and magnesium. And the bottom line was as the magnesium, as, as people run a carnivorous diet and their insulin and glucose status were improved, their magnesium uh, situation was, was better and fell into the normal range. So I think long-term it's probably not required. I do think short-term transitional in short-term transitional or adaptation situations or in extreme situations like uh, lots of exercise, there may be a role for, for supplementation. But in general, for the general person, particularly long-term, probably, and I'll say probably because I don't know anything, I don't think anything we know is definite, but probably it appears to be not required. All right, Zach, you want to do the last one about the, uh, can you can you do it? Can you go uh, long-term carnival or, and, and do endurance sets without any carbohydrates? Yeah, yeah, I'm, um, you definitely can. Uh, I don't think it, you know, this is kind of a question I see pop up a lot where, or not a lot, but every once in a while someone will be talking about like a zero carb, keto, carnivore, and like inevitably someone chimes in and says, you cannot run a marathon on no carbs. It's impossible. That's silly. It is definitely possible. People do it all the time. Um, uh, Charles, Charles Washington is, you know, one of the most, like, I guess, well-known carnivores. He runs marathons. Um, he doesn't even drink water during them, I guess. So, like, 
it is possible. So the question isn't whether can you travel 26.2 miles without carbohydrates. The question is, are you going to do it faster with carbohydrates or not? So that's where the debate is, in my opinion. Um, and it's kind of uh, it, it's 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 one of those things where I think like you know it gets heated when you look on Twitter. Sometimes you'll be looking at exercise physiologists and you know low carb, high fat proponents and they'll go back and forth and back and forth. And I mean, essentially they're arguing about like adult recess. Like, I mean, we're, we're, we're doing a sport here that, um, is, is, is for fun for the most part. So like, uh, for me, it's like, I think you kind of need to put it into the context in which you are at. So would it benefit the world record marathon holder to cut all his carbohydrates out of his diet? Um, probably not. Uh, but would it benefit someone who, uh, is, could stand to lose 20 pounds, has never ran a marathon before and is having all a few other health issues that are just more or less accepted by general society as aging to go zero carb and and prepare for a marathon? Will they see improvements? They, They very well may. So I think it really is contextual and it, a lot of things play a role in that, like how old are you, you know, how metabolically um, efficient are you and, and just, just a whole bunch of other things. So um, I guess in short, uh, you definitely can, um, but uh, then, then you kind of need to figure out for yourself, like, am I going to be a little faster by bringing back a little bit of carbohydrate or will I be faster by keeping it out? And, you know, I've seen it both ways. I've seen people uh, go keto, low carb, zero carb. Um, and they never budge from it. And they seem to always be, you know, they seem to be running faster and further and having more energy and enjoying life better that way. So like, uh, who am I to tell them that if they bring back, you know, 200 grams of carbohydrate, they're going to run two minutes faster in their marathon and, and, and have a much better, uh, approach. So a lot of it does come down to, I think, some self-experimentation once you kind of get, uh, some baseline information on yourself and get to where you need to be. Yeah, I know, Zach, you've touched on that before as far as self-selection, you know, a lot of the training and, and mu- most of the sports literature would, would argue, particularly when you talk about a two-hour marathon or, you know, a 210 marathon or, you know, world-class marathon time that all those athletes are using carbohydrates at this point. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, maybe five years from now we'll see somebody who is chronically mm-hmm chronically adapted to running you know you know essentially without carbs doing something like that we don't know it it remains to be seen be interesting we have an upcoming guest uh melinda yelverton coming on later on and she is another one of these zero carb uh not marathon but she's an ultra marathon runner she does your distance love you know the 100 mile stuff Mm -hmm. and the 12 hour and the 24 hour runs and so she's also doing this completely free of uh, carbohydrate. It'll be interesting to talk to her about her approach, and also, uh, you know, has she seen continued improvement over time? Because I think that's ultimately what we're looking for is continued improvement, uh, regardless if you're the world record holder or not. You know, it's it's whatever whatever's going to work ultimately for you. And I think, uh, you know, it's just going to be a matter of time to see what happens. It very may well be that you need, uh, you know, X grams of carbohydrates for X particular sport. I know that there are. Now, numerous examples where people are doing very well in certain isolated pockets of sports without that or in a very low-carb state. And so I think, you know, we'll just have to see how things shake out over the coming years. Cool. So that is uh, all our questions for this one. Um, 
thanks for sending those in uh, to those who are um, curious about getting their stuff answered. Definitely shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com and we'll get you on the list. Um, and then, like I said in the beginning, if you're a $10 plus Patreon supporter, we will frontline you on the questions and stuff. So you'll uh, hopefully get a little more timely response. Uh, with that, I, I guess I'm just going to quick mention that uh, a big thanks to butcherbox.com for sponsoring our show. Uh, you know, they have uh, a meat delivery system. And if you go to their website at, uh, carnival, or at butcherbox.com, uh, and type in the promo code HPO, you will get a discount on your first order and some free bacon as well as uh, support the show. So if you're buying meat and you want to go through them, you can help us out by throwing an HPO on that. Um, yeah. We also, have, we also have Thrive Market as one of our sponsors mm-hmm. too. Yep. And I think the same situation is at thrivemarket.com and then coupon code HPO. I think it's actually just if they type in thrivemarket.com backslash HPO, it will direct them to uh being sent from our show so yeah just if you want to check out thrive market stuff they got all kinds of cool stuff at um at at discount prices that are kind of high quality that you normally find at like a health food stores just type in thrivemarket.com backslash hpo and then they'll know that we sent you there so if you were going to buy that stuff anyway help us out go there and uh um thanks again for tuning in uh, to this uh q a session all right, awesome. And our next, who's our next guest? We got. I think we got. Uh, I think it's Professor uh, Stuart Phillips. Is that right? The next one we're, we're I doing. I believe so. Yeah, because this will technically yeah. be episode twenty-six. I think if we release them in okay. order of what we've recorded. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's gonna be. I mean, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to Doctor Doctor Phillips. He's an expert, one of the world's leading authority on protein metabolism and 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 muscle catabolism and uh so it'll be a very uh i think we'll get some really good information out there for you guys okay appreciate you guys tuning in thank you so much tell your friends about us don't forget to subscribe uh that 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 helps us out in some small way as well and so we appreciate you guys let's send more questions in Uh, again we're going to send the patreon folks to the front of the line uh, and then we'll get to the other questions as we have time thank you guys so much hey folks Thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at zbitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at sbakermd, that's at s-b-a-k-e-r-m-d. We're both also on Instagram, where you can find me at Zach Bitter, that's at z-a-c-h-b-i-t-t-e-r. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker, 1967, that's at s-h-a-w-n-b-a-k-e-r, 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.